It's been a long time now, thankfully, <laughs> uh, but I can remember the yearly pastor gatherings that I had to attend as a young pastor, um, in which the most common topics of conversation revolved around the asking and answering of four questions. What's your Sunday morning attendance? How many did you baptize this year? What's your budget? And have you started building yet? You all wanted to be there, didn't you? You wish you had been like me. Um, those drove the conversations. And how you answered determined um, your level of success. Your, your level of pastoral ex, uh, success in the eyes of others, and really over time, even yourself. And I, I dreaded, as you can imagine, I dreaded going to these meetings. Um, and I dreaded them because I, I didn't like being around those whose egos were larger than the rooms we were in. They thought so highly of themselves that it was obviously they truly believed they were the greatest. And they were a blessing to their people and also uh, to those of us who should be learning from them and emulating them. But to be fair, they weren't the only ones in the room with the big heads or the big egos. Because those of us who were less successful still would circle up and before long we were in our own pride taking pot shots at who we called the upper echelon and then we found ourselves arguing about or, or one-upping the other, trying to determine who was the greater of the lessers. We were all doing it. And looking back, I think it was all just a ruse. Right? It was all... All the conversations were just means of, of hiding. They were means of concealing the truth from others and even from ourselves, of evading the reality of how we really felt about ourselves and what we thought about our ministries, how we felt about them, because the reality was nothing was great because we weren't great. Nobody was. We were all falling short personally. We were all falling short professionally and in some way, and some in the room were no matter what meeting, someone in the room was carrying around fears and anxieties and, and burdens and doubts about our faith and about our calls as pastors. Some in the room were frustrated and discouraged with our struggle with and ultimately our inability to perfectly meet the standard that God had presented us in terms of who we were to be as under-shepherds. And still others were discouraged because their ministries weren't quite what they thought their ministries were going to be when they 
left seminary. They had these, these great ideations of what that was going to look like and what they were anticipating and basically what they deserved in some way. So rather than admit our lack of greatness, we simply attempted to portray ourselves as greater than we really were, trying to be altogether better than we really were, particularly when it came to comparing ourselves to others in the room. (laughs) We may not have been great, but at least we were better off then, or at least we weren't as bad as the other guy sitting next to us. But this isn't just, or wasn't, and isn't just a pastoral problem, if we're honest. This was and is a people problem. Everybody does it. Spend a few minutes on Facebook and Instagram, if you don't believe me. No one wants to admit to themselves or to others that they have doubts and fears and anxieties or that, they, that their love and devotion for Christ ebbs and flows and even wanes in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials and suffering. We don't want to admit or want others to know that we are discouraged and, and really frustrated with our, our lives and believe we deserve better because we've earned it in some way. We want everyone to believe that we have more than our spiritual acts together. We're great Christians. And in some cases, depending on the day, even the greatest. But I don't think you'll be surprised to hear me say that this is not a new phenomenon. I believe this is what's going on in our text tonight in Luke 22. And that means Jesus' response to the disciples in this text has implications for us and and applications for us that we'll get to in a few minutes. Our outline, found in the normal place, um, has three points to it. We're going to see a determination, a disputation, and a designation, right? Really simple. Determination, disputation, and designation. And, And before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would grant power to the preaching of your Word. As always, I ask that you would grant us spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might appraise and apprehend the truth regarding these words of Christ and His gospel. Would you awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and then refresh us, encourage us, and comfort us? I'm unfit for this, a task to which you've called me. So I'm in need of your grace and your spirit to fill me, that I might do do something good for you this evening. I pray that be, be the case for the sake of Christ and his church. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, the meal's coming to an end. It was a meal that was to be, as we learned last week, a sign and seal of the new covenant. And that was to also be, among other things, a pledge and a bond of their union and communion with Christ and with one another by the Spirit. 
Thus, the inappropriateness of what's about to take place, I mean, it's inappropriate anyway, but coming on the heels of the first Lord's Supper, it couldn't get more inappropriate than what's about to happen. Jesus has probably set the cup down and he said amen, but before they can begin and launch into the questions that they might have of, why in the world did you lead us in the Passover the way you led us? He makes a statement as they're all still gathered around the table, and it's a statement that that not only startles them, but probably disturbs them greatly. He makes a bold statement regarding the betrayal that's about to take place. Look at verse 21. He says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now again, we've said for three weeks, we know that this secret plan is in place. It's already been set in motion. Jesus then announces that someone at the table is involved in this plan. A hand that's on the table, a hand that's been in the bitter herbs with all the other hands, is the hand that is going to deliver him over to the religious leaders so that they might um, arrest him and put him on trial and beat him and, and ultimately kill him on his cross. But as we said a, the last couple of weeks, we've said that, that the, the reality is that while this was a secret plan, it was also a part of a predetermined plan of God's. Nothing is is surprising at this point. It's all going according to plan. And you'll notice in verse 22, Jesus says, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But then he adds this, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And he is the Son of Man would would continue on this journey toward the cross. We've been on this journey for quite a while. He's going to the cross where he's going to fill God's single plan of redemption. The one plan that he's had from the beginning. Since prior, actually prior to the foundation of the world, this plan has been in place. But in the same sentence, in the same breath even, he also pronounces woe to the one by whose hand it is all going to take place. Judas is going to be held responsible for what he's done. Not only could he not say, remember two weeks ago, not only could he not say, the devil made me do it, he's also not going to be able to say, God made me do it. No one, he had no one to blame but himself. He himself was going to pay the price for what he had done, and it was going to be an an eternal price for his role in the death of the Savior. And it's an example, we scratch our heads because it's an example of an antinomy that we've seen before. If you remember, an antinomy is defined as a fundamental and apparently unresolvable conflict between two equally valid principles. Some would even say two or apparently unresolvable uh, contradictions. And the principles in this case and that we've seen before are the principles of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. 
when we saw this earlier in the gospel, uh, we, we saw a positive example of this. We saw a positive example regarding God's sovereignty and man's uh, responsibility in salvation. And while salvation, we know, and we saw at that time, while salvation is promised uh, to those that the Father calls, and it has been accomplished by the sufficient work of Christ, and it's applied by the power of the Holy Spirit, man still remains responsible to believe. It's, it's both and, not either or. You see, the faith that we've been given through the ministry of the Spirit and the Word, that faith is our faith. And our faith must be exercised. And our faith is exercised and, and we embrace the grace that is extended to us. So while God is sovereign of, in salvation, no one is coerced into believing. No one is forced into believing something that they don't want to believe. No one is dragged into heaven kicking and screaming. Belief is a volitional act. It's an act of the will. But that act of the will would not be possible because it could not be possible apart from God's sovereign work. In the words of John, he says, we love God because He first loved us. Love is an act of the will. It's not an emotion. It's an act of, a will, in, of the will. So we willingly love only because He loved us first. Well, here in verse 22, we actually see a negative example of this antinomy regarding God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the, betray, in the betrayal, trial, and crucifixion of Christ. It had been determined by uh, it had been determined by the Father that Christ would be, in Peter's words, delivered up according to the de- definitive or definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But also, in the words of Peter, he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And Jesus said, "Woe to that man, one of those lawless men, by whom he is betrayed." In other words, Judas is going to be held responsible for his part in this betrayal. He would be culpable for the crucifixion of Christ. He was not coerced or forced into betraying Christ. He wasn't uh, tricked into betraying Christ. He didn't go into the meeting with the religious leaders either unaware or kicking and screaming. He did not want to do. He actually did exactly what he wanted to do. What he did, he did willingly as a child of disobedience and wrath and an enemy of Christ who was dead in his trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air. And brothers and sisters, we must admit that whether the example is positive or negative, that antinomy is no less difficult to understand. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are two ends of the same cord that meet at the throne of God. And the mystery of both being true is not for us to solve. It is for us to believe. Because the Word 
from beginning to end proclaims both to be true. And the word is authoritative. And so we are responsible to bend our wills to it, not it to our wills. And beloved, we need to hear this woe that Jesus pronounces and pronounced upon Judas as a warning to us. Woe to us if we were to ever betray or mock or to turn our backs upon Christ and denounce our faith. Because like Judas, we could never say the devil made me do it. We could never say that God just didn't choose me. Our rejection of Him would be our responsibility and our responsibility alone and the price to be paid would be ours to pay and that price would be eternal and severe. We need to hear that warning tonight. Well, as you can imagine, that statement began a very interesting conversation. Verse 23 says, they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? And I, I, am, I imagine, right, there's always one or two that are still lingering, you know, eating even though dinner's pretty much over, it's, you know, you're eating family style, so as you're having those conversations, someone is still kind of taking a bread and dipping it in the herbs here and there. And I imagine the minute he said that the hand is on the table, everybody drew their hand back. And they began to look around the room at each other. And I'm sure the questions began with the ones closest to them, right? They're leaning on their left elbows, and so they probably leaned back to the guy on their right or leaned forward to the person on their left. And they began asking questions like, who do you think it is? I, I don't know. What do you think? Is it you? No, it's not me. Is it you? No. Well, who do you think it is? And then I imagine at some point after that, everybody's been covered there, that the questions became more introspective. Could it be me? I've struggled. Some of what he said has been really hard. I don't, I don't always believe him. Some of what he says is scary. I, I wouldn't do that. I, I couldn't do that. Could I? And in order to convince themselves and the others around them they, that they're not the one, they probably began to intensify a little bit. Right, it began to get a little louder, and, and maybe they even creep off the couches a little bit, and they began posturing and standing around and, and, and moving back and forth between this self-defensiveness and this self-assurance all in, a, in, in an attempt to, again, prove to themselves and everybody else in the room right, that they were too good to do anything like that. That's why verse 24 says, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. So our conversation is now, oh, I could never be the one. 
Right? I left my family and job to follow him. And somebody else pipes in and says, well, it's not me. I made more money than you, so I left more than you did, so it definitely couldn't be me. It's more likely you than it is me. And someone else chimes in, well, it couldn't be me. He told me that I would be a fisher of men. And then someone else says, well, he, when he sent us out, I, I led five more people to the Lord than you did. So it's definitely not me. It's probably you. And then someone else says, well, he took me up on the hill and I saw Moses and Elijah. So you know it's not me. Back and forth, right? The inappropriate nature of this. And the questions surrounding who the betrayer might be and the arguments of who was greatest was telling. Because on the one hand, right, they could have been and, and were being prideful. Right? They were, they were um, trying to one-up the other and being more important than the other. They were actually so high on themselves, you know, they're jockeying for position. It was, again, simply an act to show that they deserved, they deserved what they had. You know, they had earned it. They had earned the right. They had earned the position. Some of them may have actually thought so highly of themselves that they, there was no way it could ever be them. They would never betray him ever in a million years. They had it all together. But there's also another possibility. And when we hear that side of it, we hear that, that pride, and we know that pride is a part of that. But but I think there's also something else going on with some of them anyway, another possibility. They could have been, again, hiding and concealing the truth from one another and evading the reality about what they really thought about themselves and, and about this whole discipleship thing. They could have been portraying themselves, again, as having it all together and being better than they actually were, but really deep down inside, they're carrying these fears and anxieties and their burdens and their doubts about their faith and this call to discipleship that they've received and that they followed, and they're second-guessing, having left their homes and having left their livelihoods. And, and probably because we've seen this as, as they've journeyed, we know that there were probably one or two of them that were frustrated and discouraged because things weren't turning out the way that they thought it, they were going to turn out. But rather than admit their lack of greatness, they simply try, again, to portray themselves as, as having it all together, being better than they really were. Particularly when they compared each other, compared themselves to one another. They may not, again, they may not have been great, but at least they're better than the next guy. But the bottom line is, so e either way, we've, we've got an issue, right? The either way, we've got a problem, and the problem is that their focus was on themselves and not the Savior. In both cases, their focus was on themselves and not on Jesus, who was right there standing in their midst, and He's only going to be there for a few more hours. They're so self-absorbed self that they're missing the Savior who is in front of them, who is about to lay Himself down for them. 
And their preoccupation with themselves would lead straight in the next few hours to extreme failure, both personally and professionally. They may not have been the one who betrayed him, but they'd turn into runners and sleepers and deniers and deserters and cowards. And they would be forced to recognize not only, not only their inability to meet the standard and fulfill the responsibilities that had been set before them by the Lord, but they would also have to face their failure to reciprocate the love, acceptance, and friendship Jesus had shown them as well. It's a mess. And as I mentioned when we began, this... this wasn't just their problem. It's not just a pastoral problem. It's a people problem. We all do it. Social media is the first clue. And we're so full of pride that we either fail to see who we really are or we see who we really are and we don't want to admit it. We don't want to admit it to ourselves. We don't want to admit it to others. We don't want to admit our doubts, fears, and anxieties. We don't want to, again, admit that our, our love and devotion for Christ ebbs and flows and wanes in the midst of trouble. We want everyone to know we have our spiritual acts together. And my prayer is that every one of us in the room would recognize our pride as well as how fall we how far we fall short of the glory of God and stop the charade. My prayer is that we would acknowledge, always acknowledge our need for a Savior. Repent of our sin. Reciprocate that love and acceptance and friendship Jesus has shown us without having to face circumstances that put us in a position of possibly becoming deniers, deserters, and cowards. Well, Jesus did what he always did when this topic came up. This isn't the only place this happens, right? This is a repetitive conversation that they've had that we've seen. And he attempted to set them straight on what true greatness really looked like. And so in verse 25, and, and he points them to himself. And in verse 25, he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Once again, he has reminded them, we've heard this throughout our study, here's what the, the definition of greatness is in the world. The world defines greatness in terms of power and uh, position and prestige and persuasiveness. And he identifies the great ones as those who uh, are the source of or the go-to for the things that we need. And at that time, it would have been kings rulers of the people, but of course for us today, it's the politicians and the businessmen and the celebrities and even professional athletes who are given these platforms to exercise their power um, because of their money and status. How many times do we hear a, a celebrity from Hollywood commenting on some sort of social issue? Who really cares? But then he said, not so with you. 
In other words, look, that's not, Jesus says, that's not my definition of greatness. For you and me, and that shouldn't be your definition of greatness. For you and me, there should be a role reversal. He says, you need to be the youngest, not the oldest. And we, we think, what do you mean by that? It sounds strange, but listen to these words of Philip Reichen. He says, in those days, people gave a great deal of deference to their elders. There were privileges and prerogatives that went with being a man or woman of a certain age. Younger people stood up when an older person entered a room. They listened carefully to what the old folks had to say on the assumption that wisdom came with experience. Youngsters regarded their elders as their betters. So when Jesus says, you know, to be great, you must become the younger or the youngest, he's basically saying that the, the greatest is the one who serves, not the one who is served or seeks to be served. The, the greatest is the first, not the last. The one on bottom, not the top. The meek, not the strong. The, the one who gives, not the one who takes. The one who listens, not the one who feels like they always have to be heard. The humble, not the prideful. And in the words of J.C. Ryle, true greatness exhibits a humble readiness to do anything and put our hands to any good work, a cheerful willingness to fill any post, however lowly, and discharge any office, however unpleasant, if we can only promote happiness and holiness. And then he redirects himself. And he redirects, all right, he redirects them. He redirects them from themselves to himself, where the, the attention belonged all the time. It's where it should have been all along. He said, for who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. In other words, if you want to see someone who's great, or you want to see the greatest, you need to look at me. And if it was anybody but Christ, that would have been a very arrogant statement. But he alone was deserving of that label. He could only draw attention to himself because he, in fact, was the greatest. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was the Son of Man. He was the Eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity. He was in the words of the Nicene Creed that we recite every fourth Sunday of the month. He's very God of very God. So he is deserving of that. He is deserving of being called the greatest. But then he says, but what have I been doing? I deserve to be reclining at this table. That's my position in terms of who I am. That's what I should be doing and what should be happening? Because in, in just a few hours, he is going to the greatest point of death on the cross for them. So adding to that, not only is he the greatest just because he's the greatest, but because of what he's about to do, what should they be doing? They should be serving him. And yet, what is he doing? Not only is he about to serve them, but we know from John's gospel that he has already served them because prior to the meal that we saw last week, he actually washed their feet. Talk about a menial task. The bottom line is, once again, in the words of Pastor Riken, the point is not that service will get us to greatness, but that service is the greatness. 
And in the words of Leon Morris, Jesus is not saying that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove themselves in a lowly place. He is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. Brothers and sisters, we have not been called to to, um, be great. We've been called to serve. And what we've heard over and over and over for the last 20 years is that we just need to go be great. And it's the antithesis of what Jesus says here. We've been called to serve. We've been called to serve one another. We've been called to serve the least, last, and the lost. The great people will be found in the lowest, most obscure, least likely of places. The places most people want to avoid... And, and avoid the limelight or the headlines. They're just going about their business, serving those around them for the sake of Christ, emulating what He Himself has done, modeling and serving in that same way. And boys and girls, I know you think, well, how, how can I do that? What, what does that look like for me? I, I get mom and dad, and what about me? And I want you to know that it's as simple as letting someone else go first at home. It's as simple as allowing someone to play with the best toy. It's allowing someone to have the biggest cookie. And it's looking out for those who are friendless and who are alone and need companionship. Boys and girls... Adults, it's not hard. And that brings us to our last point, which is a designation. Look at verse 28. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Despite the inappropriateness of this conversation and the timing, despite all that they had been doing, despite them missing him and focusing all upon themselves, all the arguing, um, right? He knows what it is about. He knows what they're about to do. He knows what they're about to do in the next few hours. He knows who they're about to become. And Jesus still takes the time to affirm them. He affirmed their faithfulness in following Him over the last three years. He affirmed the fact that they had left their homes and livelihoods and walked with Him through the ups and downs of all that had taken place on their journey to Jerusalem. They had remained by His side, and He was grateful. And despite what they, again, what they were about to do, despite... Him finding himself alone in these next few hours, despite them forsaking him when he would need them most, he not only graciously affirmed them, but he made an astounding statement regarding their future. It was a statement of reward. He was designating them 
who would be the deniers, the deserters, and the cowards, not only as recipients of a reward, but as recipients of his oath and promise of receiving that reward. And that reward was the same kingdom that his father had given him. It's amazing. The disciples that were there with him that night, minus Judas, would one day sit around a table with him and participate in in a great, magnificent banquet. And they were... They would be benefactors, or they were going to participate in, be benefiting in his everlasting recipients of the blessing of God that is in store for all those who will be with him and in his everlasting kingdom. But not only that, this particular group, this, this group with him at that moment would also receive a place of prominence and privilege that was theirs alone and would sit down with him on his thrones and rule the people of God alongside him. Again, that's amazing, considering where they're going to be in the next few hours. And brothers and sisters, the the promise to rule, again, is is a, a ruling in this special way was only given to them. But we too have been promised the kingdom just as much as they've been promised the kingdom. It's ours. We too have a place at the banquet table. The banquet table that, by the way, that we get a foretaste of every time we come here to worship and every time we come to the Lord's table. But that seat has not been earned by us. We don't deserve it because we're not great. There's no greatness in and of ourselves. It it won't even be secured or hasn't been and won't be secured even as we serve others. It's not something that we grab. It's been secured for us by the great one. the great one who served us by laying his life down. All that is ours has been secured by him. But it's ours, nonetheless, because of Christ. We are possessors of it. We have been assured, we've been promised and assured that we will receive a reward. But that reward is for what He has done for us, in us, and through us. He's done it all for us. And I want everyone in the room to understand tonight that there is plenty of room around this table, that table, for anyone who will repent of their sin and turn to Him in faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive this word with faith and love and lay it up 
in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for the sake of Christ and his church. I pray these things. Amen.